Let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. It is a privilege to have you here. I am Pastor Jay, and we are in a series in this letter written by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And this week, we come to a foundational text. Actually, last Sunday, this Sunday, really, it's all one big text. I've divided it into two sermons. This is foundational. Kids, young people, and adults, if you want to know how to live the Christian life well and not end up in the ditch, if you want to know how to end up on the new earth and end up well and die well, this chapter is absolutely indispensable in its call for true Christians to declare war on sin in their life. And so we are going to dive in and look at that. Uh, I love reading history. I love reading church history. But I don't know of anybody in church history, to my knowledge, that has described the Christians. When I say Christian, I'm talking about somebody who's genuinely converted and born again. And God's Holy Spirit lives in them. And they have repented and trusted Christ as Savior. That's what I mean when you hear me say Christian, just to be clear. I don't know of anybody that's described the Christian's battle with sin indwelling sin better and more graphically than the great Puritan scholar John Owen. John Owen lived in the 1600s, an amazing uh, scholar and pastor. At one point, he pastored a church of 2,000 people. He was an incredible preacher. He also preached to parliament regularly. He was chaplain to Oliver Cromwell when they went over and invaded Ireland. And then also he wrote extensively and eventually was vice chancellor at Oxford. So this was a omni-competent guy. But one of the reasons I like reading Owen is not only because he was a man that was so talented, but he suffered greatly. So I know that whatever I'm reading or reading through him is coming through the filter, as Martin Luther would say, the hermeneutic of suffering. He is a man who suffered greatly. He lost his dearly beloved wife uh, almost a decade before he died. He had numerous financial setbacks. He had constant health issues. Among them, uh, kidney stones and asthma just plagued him much of his life. And probably, though, the one that's the most horrific, at least from a human perspective, is that John Owen lost all 11 of his children to death, most of them post-birth, I mean, after birth. And he lost a number of toddlers and younger kids the only child he had that actually survived to adulthood, a daughter, ended up in a very abusive and miserable marriage. She left it, ended up back in his house, <clears throat> and then shortly thereafter she got tuberculosis and she died. And so by the time he died in his late 60s, John Owen literally had outlived his wife and all 11 children. And so I know as I read him, I'm reading a man who who loved Christ, loved the scriptures, but understood what it means to suffer. I bring all this up because Owen is probably the most published author in the 17th century. His collected volumes are 28, or, I mean 23, but he wrote 8 million words. But of all he wrote, he has a small book, comes out of one of the volumes, and it's been put into a small book called The Mortification of Sin. This is where he is so good at describing the Christian's battle with indwelling sin. By the way, I would highly encourage you to read it. I just read it again recently, but I would highly encourage you not to read the original English. You say, original English, what else are we going to read? Well, he wrote in Latinized English, so it means he wrote long pages with no punctuation, no paragraph divisions. It's a little tedious. It's a little challenging. The first time I read Mortification for Sin, I read that. 
But then it's been paraphrased, using mostly his language, but adding punctuation and paragraph divisions. I would highly encourage you to read that one. But it is a true delight in spiritual classic. I want you to hear his description of the Christian life. Because it's, it's, a, it's a definition that's not popular today when it comes to killing sin and battling sin. So here is John Owen on the need to declare war on sin. And teens and young people, I want, you, I want you to hear this. This is so vital for understanding the Christian life. Sin is always acting. Now remember, he's writing to true Christians. He's not writing to non-Christians here. He's writing to those who are genuinely born again and the Holy Spirit's alive in them. Sin is always acting, always conceiving, always seducing, always tempting. Take heed. This is how sin works. Hardening the heart, searing the conscience, blinding the mind and the emotions, and deceiving the entire soul. Are you killing sin? Thank you for your honesty. Do you make it your daily work? Do not take a day off from this work. And hear this. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. We're currently in a sermon series in this letter. We're calling it the supremacy of Christ because this church Paul's writing to in Colossae, which is in western Turkey today, was being invaded by a false gospel and a counterfeit Jesus. And part of that was false teaching about what the Christian life is. So Paul is writing to reinforce the resume of the real Jesus. And hence we called the subtitle of the series The Supremacy of Christ. And today we come to a section that is just downright violent. I promised you last weekend, this weekend would be a violent sermon. And so lots of, you know, lots of guys looked up and they're like, what? This Sunday, today, borrowing a title from John Grisham, A Time to Kill. Paul is telling us today, if you know Christ, there is a time to kill. And that leads Paul to discuss two things here this morning. What to kill and how to kill it. So let's dive in. First, verses 5 to 11, what to kill. And as we dive in, there's two fundamental questions that confront us in verses 5 to 11. First question, well, who's supposed to be doing the killing? And secondly, what is it they're supposed to kill? So first of all, who's supposed to be doing the killing? And the key to that question is in verse 5, the first phrase, and it's Paul's word, therefore. I told you last weekend, Paul is the great logician. He's always arguing very logically and summarizing and then using the word therefore. And in verse 5, in your English translation, whatever you're using, somewhere in the first phrase of verse 5, you have a therefore or henceforth. And that means he's summarizing. He's summarizing the first four verses. That tells us his target audience. Who's his target audience? His target audience are genuine, true, born-again Christians. That's who he's talking to. He's not talking to just religious people. He's not talking to church attenders only. He's not talking to people who would say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of spiritual. That's not his audience. He's talking to genuine, converted people. And you get that from verse 1. Here's his target audience. He's writing to those who have been raised with Christ. That's who he's, that's who he's writing to. That gives us the clue that the license to kill here, quote James Bond, you got a license to kill. If you know Christ, God has given you the license and the ability to kill. We'll get to what it is shortly. Look at the verse one. 
the, word, the, the verb raised, and I said just a couple weeks ago, that is indicative. It's in the indicative mode. That's, we have that in English too. What's indicative? If, it's, if, if a verb's in indicative, it means it's a statement of fact. It's a statement of truth. It's not a command. It's just a statement of what is. These are usually the kind of verbs Paul uses in the first parts of his letters. This is pretty, this is pretty standard fare for Paul, where he states a whole bunch of doctrinal and theological truths about some subject. And then it's usually followed by a whole bunch of imperative verbs. Those are verbs of command. They don't state truth. They tell us what our obligation is. And that's how Paul writes. If you look at Ephesians, if you look at Philippians, you look at Colossians, Paul has hefty doses of indicatives, and then they're followed by hefty helpings of imperatives. This is true, therefore this. This is a fact, if you know Christ, or this is a biblical truth, therefore this is the obligation. And in other words, saving faith, true saving faith, must lead to action. If it doesn't, then you are deceiving yourself, or I am deceiving myself. James is very clear about that. Faith without works just a mere belief in God without works is dead. And in verses 5 to 11, Christians then are commanded through a series of imperatives to kill. That brings us to the second question in our first point. Well, what is it we're supposed to kill? What is the license to kill? And the short answer, sinful behaviors. We learned in verses 1 to 4, a true Christian is what? Raised with Christ and no longer controlled by sin raised with Christ is Paul's way of saying that something happens the moment a person repents and believes the Holy Spirit comes into them and something ontologically changes in them and the risen Christ is alive in them giving them new abilities and new powers and new desires and new hungers what didn't matter once before now matters and the things that seemed so important one time aren't so important now that's what Paul means by raised with Christ And because of that, he now has this whole series of imperatives. Therefore, we're to start killing things in our life like sinful passions and sinful behaviors. What's his point? Here's his point. True disciples obey Jesus. False disciples do not. So the first thing he says, verses 5 to 7, Christians are to kill sinful passions. And then in verses 8 to 10, they're to kill sinful practices. So verse 5 to 7. First, true Christians are to kill sinful passions. Put to death, or you could translate it colloquially, kill. Therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature. And then notice the list. The first one is the Greek word porneia. It's a broad term. We get our English word pornography from it. It covered a wide range of sexual sins. Let me just add, the only Sexual activity God recognizes. And let's be we've talked about this. God gave the gift of sexual activity to the human race. It's a wonderful gift. But the only sexual activity God recognizes is in the covenant of a heterosexual marriage between a man and a woman. All other expressions of sexual activity outside that are sinful and destructive. Paul is very clear. So that's that word, porneia. So we're to kill sexual sin, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways. These were the things that used to matter to them. The way you once lived. 
And now in verses 8 to 10, after he talks about killing sinful passions, he's going to talk about what's next? Killing sinful practices, 8 to 10. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as anger and rage and malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the creator and the image of its knowledge of its creator. There is hence no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So let me back up. I believe summarizing is very important as you're going along teaching. Let me just summarize very quickly. Because a true born-again Christian that the Holy Spirit is alive in is raised with Christ, they have new obligations. If you claim Christ, if you claim to be a true disciple, I know not everyone here does, but if you do, you have new obligations on you as I do on me. What? Well, first of all, I have an obligation to kill. I have an obligation to kill pride. The Christian has an obligation to kill greed. The Christian has an obligation to declare war on homosexual behavior in their life or lying or stealing or cheating. Because a believer is raised with Christ, they have a duty to attack. Attack what? Selfishness. Kids, need to attack selfishness. If you know Jesus, he has the power to help. We need to attack sexual lust, pornography, gluttony, racism, abusing alcohol. We need to slay. Slay what? Bitterness. The Bible talks a lot about the danger and destructiveness of, of bitterness. Envy. I need to slay fear. I need to slay gossip and self-righteousness. And the list goes on and on and on. If you go, we're not going to go there, but in Romans 6, I referenced it a couple weeks ago, Paul makes a very important statement that confuses a lot of Christians. He says, true Christians have died to sin. But a lot of Christians misunderstand what he's saying. Paul does not ever say sin died. Ladies and gentlemen, sin very much alive and well on planet Earth. The true believer has died to sin. What does that mean? It means they no longer exist under its dominion, its power, its jurisdiction anymore. Or to put it another way, sin is very much alive, but the risen Christ is at work in the true Christian, and they no longer, as Paul writes in Romans 6, 6, they're no longer servants. They no longer serve sin. They don't have to anymore. They're no longer under its dominion, its power, its authority. Now, let me give one caveat here because this has led to a heresy in the church that has been a minor subpoint, and that is this. Well, does that mean then that I can reach a place in my life where I can live sinlessly? I can live without sin. I had an uncle one time who, who adopted this view, and he tried to convince me that you know, he'd reached a place of sinless perfection. Having Knowing him, I knew he was not telling the truth. <laughs> but the point is, there is no expectation in the Bible. There's this tension. There's, this, there's a command, kill sin and attack it. You now have new weapons. You have the Spirit and the Bible and the church. You have new desires. Go, out, go forth. You are, you're equipped. But then there's this other side of the tension. That there's no expectation in the Bible that in this life, before heaven and the new earth, that we're somehow going to reach a state where we never sin anymore, but we're to keep warring at it. 
So it's very important. What it means is I have the ability as a Christian, and if you know Christ, you have the ability to increasingly say no to sinful tendencies and behaviors that destroy and that lead to misery and bondage and slavery and despair. That's what we're talking about. I want to turn to one other passage where Paul is famous for his very severe language about killing sin. It's in Romans 8. So if you go back just a couple books to Romans 8, Paul's longest letter. If you're not familiar with the New Testament, we have 13 letters by Paul, and they're arranged not by chronology and not by date and not by theme. They're arranged by length. The longest is Romans. The shortest is Philemon. Romans chapter 8, especially verses 11 to 13, fit perfectly with Colossians 3. Paul's language here is just as severe that Christians are to subdue and kill sin. And Paul's very clear how much is at stake if they don't. You know, I, I, I hear people, I've, I've thought it before, but I hear it said, but it's so hard to be obedient. The price tag is so high. And as we often say, if you think the price tag of obedience is too high, try the price tag of a disobedience and see how that works for you. It's a lot higher. It's a lot more lethal. And Paul here is very clear. He has very forceful language about killing sin and what happens depending on which direction we choose to go. So I'm just going to read verse 11 through 13. It's a great chapter in Paul's letter to Romans. Verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. So, if you truly know Christ as Savior, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. That is exactly Colossians 3.1. That's just a restatement of it, which shouldn't surprise us at all because same dude wrote it. Okay, verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. So, verse 11, indicative. Indicative, a statement of fact. If you know Christ, his spirit's alive in you, you've been raised with him, somehow Jesus is alive inside you, giving you new power, new ability, that leads, that's indicative, that now leads to what? Imperative, obligation. That's what we have here, secondly. But it's not to the flesh, that means sin, but to live according to it. But if, for if you live, 13, according to the flesh, you will die. That needs to be said by pastors. It needs to be said with passion, blood earnestness. It needs to be said by moms and dads that are kids. If you live this way, you're going to die. You're going to end up in horrible places. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. You can translate again, but if by the Spirit you kill the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Paul is saying, Indwelling sin. There's another phrase that confuses people. In fact, one, another one of John Owen's great books is called Indwelling Sin. Another one of his small classics. Just indwelling sin. Paul is saying indwelling sin, even in the believer, is still alive 
They're just not chained to it anymore. They're not in slavery to it like they used to be because the Holy Spirit's alive in them. But it's still so seductive, so active, and so deadly, and so deceptive that if I'm not regularly going at it and killing it and trying to subdue it, it will corrupt and deceive and destroy. One more quote from John Owen, Mortification of Sin. You listening, young people? We need to continue to attack sin every day with the spiritual weapons that will kill it. What are those weapons? This is a massive one. This is the key to warfare. Now listen to this insightful thinking. Just when we think a sin is dead because it's been quiet. (laughs) Do you ever have sin quiet down for a while? We all do. We all have different sins that plague us. In other words, trip us up every Every Christian has probably a different subset of sins that really pester them. And every so often those sins will die down for a while and quit talking to you so much. It could be lust. It could be gluttony. It could be abusing alcohol. It could be bitterness and anger. It could be cheating and lying. Whatever that sin is, it'll quiet down every so often. Even when we think a sin is dead because it's quiet, We must labor to give it new wounds and new blows every day. (laughs) When it quiets down is the time to go after it. And we must swing the axe at its root. Time to kill. All right. About this point, many nice suburbanite smiling Bible-toting, American, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians start thinking something like, this is a little bit much. And frankly, they're taken back by, I would call it the sheer forcefulness of the biblical language about killing sin. Why? Because our culture is awash, I'll just pick on America, is awash in the prosperity gospel, among other false gospels. And it leads to what I call the relaxed gospel, the laissez-faire gospel, the casual gospel, which is what? Well, yeah, when someone gets saved, yes, there's some sins that still have to be dealt with, but a lot of Christians, even Bible-believing Christians and Bible-preaching churches, tend to view sin more as an occasional nuisance that just needs a swat here and there than something that has to be entered into mortal combat with every day. It's just not a popular vision of the Christian life. And when you take somebody like a Joel Osteen and you put a John Owen over here, what they're painting, what they're talking about isn't even on the same planet. They are describing not two visions of Christianity, they're describing two different religions. And we have to see that. One is a false religion that leads to hell of moralism and prosperity theology, and the other is a biblical vision of a hope-filled God pulling us forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. But we have to war against sin. Bible tells us in Colossians 3, Even though the true Christian is raised with Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit, go back to Colossians 3, even though true disciples are released from the controlling power of sin, there remains an ongoing battle with indwelling sin and the stakes are enormous. 
Now I have the power to fight sin and I finally have the power to say no on a consistent basis. And what Paul's writing in Romans 8 and what he's writing in Colossians 3 is pretty consistent with the New Testament. It's filled with very strong language, friends, strong language about the battle for holiness. I was doing some work this week just unearthing some of these phrases to remind myself Trying to do a little, I try to preach, I try to preach my sermons to myself first. That's the best and only way for a preacher to do this. Here's some of the, of the, of the phrases I dug up this week. This is not an isolated theme. This is a regular theme in the Bible about the need to go to war with indwelling sin in our lives if we know Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, I discipline my body and keep it under control so I won't be disqualified for the prize. Prize, we talked about a few weeks ago, he's not talking about losing his salvation, talking about losing his reward someday. Romans 8, 13, kill the deeds of the flesh and you will live. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding. Galatians 6, 9, let us not be weary in well-doing, for we will reap a harvest you get weary sometimes in doing well? I do. You get weary sometimes battling that same sin over and over, or those same couple sins over and over, especially when you talk to a Christian, another Christian, and they're not wrestling with those same couple sins. They wrestle with something else, but they're like, I don't wrestle with that. You get weary. Philippians 3, 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, or Hebrews 12, 14, a verse that should send a jolt of joy and terror into our lives. Make every effort to be holy. I memorized this verse as a teenager. Make every effort to be holy, for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Beloved, ladies and gentlemen, young people, kids, one of the reasons so many professing Christians are derailed by sin and are so miserable and so unhappy is because, as the old preacher used to say, in this case, Billy Sunday, they treat sin like a cream puff and not a rattlesnake. Now, that's great imagery. That's great imagery. You couldn't find two things more juxtaposed, probably, than a cream puff and a rattlesnake and what you want to do with either one. I've encountered rattlesnakes. I know what I want to do when I encounter one, and I have encountered cream puffs, and I know what I want to do when I encounter a cream puff. But he, he's right. Most Christians view sin in, in more like a cream puff than, than a rattlesnake. And so I'm not trying to regularly kill it. Look, at the battle to, to kill indwelling sin is a little bit like the resolve of a general in war. A lot of you know about our Civil War. Some of you are enthusiasts. One thing that is fairly well known is that Abraham Lincoln, great president, had a horrible time trying to find generals that would complete battles. He found generals that were great strategists. He found generals that had lots of courage. He found some brilliant generals. But they'd win a battle and then they would just kind of stop and wouldn't pursue the enemy relentlessly. And the list went on and on. George McClellan, Ambrose Burnside, 
or, or, or Joseph Hooker or Joseph, uh, uh, George Meade. I mean, the list went on and on and on until one day he found this diminutive little frumpy soldier in Illinois, from Illinois, named Ulysses Grant. One point when Lincoln's wife was complaining to him about Grant's brutality in battle, Lincoln famously told her, he said, look, I can't get rid of him because he fights and he wins. That's the kind of resolve a Christian has to have when it comes to sin. That kind of resolve, uh, Paul Johnson, the British historian, said the same thing to Napoleon. He said Napoleon was ruthless in battle. His objective was to pursue the enemy, kill the enemy, and occupy their capital. That's a great spiritual picture of what needs to be done when it comes to sin. Pursue it, kill it, and occupy the capital. Before we go to the how this morning, which is our last point, I want to just do a quick reminder. Why, let me ask it, why is holiness such a big deal? Why is it so important in the Christian life? Maybe three reasons, if you're taking notes. Number one, because holiness confirms that my salvation is real. Is my desire to be holy, is your desire to be holy, continues to grow and you pursue it stumblingly as we do, but as you pursue it and repent and get up and keep going, holiness confirms my salvation is real. I love Jerry Bridges' writings. And one that had a huge impact on me when I read it as a teenager, the practice of holiness, the pursuit of holiness, is one called the practice of godliness. That's the second one. The pursuit of holiness is the first one. I love this simple phrase about holiness confirming our salvation. He says, quote, the only safe evidence that we are in Christ is a holy life. That's the only safe evidence. The only safe evidence that we are really Christians is a holy life. Second reason it's important, holiness is directly connected. And by that I mean directly connected to joy, spiritual health, physical health, and even emotional stability. If you're just going straight into sin, if you're toying with sin, dealing, you're not only going to destroy yourself spiritually, but the effects will start being evident Physically, psychologically, and emotionally. And the third reason that holiness is so vital is it attracts others to the gospel. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others, that means your good works, so they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father. So when a Christian pursues holiness and others are watching them, they're attracted to the gospel. That brings us to verses 12 to 17, and this is gonna serve as our summons this morning. How, then how do you do it? Preachers have to end with how. Too many preachers don't end with how. How, how do you do this? Well, he's going to give us how. First are verses 1 to 4, which is, remember, if you know Christ, the risen Christ is in you, therefore, so remember, Jesus said this last weekend, Jesus is not just my example, he's my power. There's a huge difference in how you look at that because I am in union with him. And bottom line, union in Christ means I have new power to say no increasingly and consistently to sin in my life. So remember, if you know Christ, there isn't Christ is in you. Secondly, verses 12 to 14, remember what to put on. And Paul here is very clear. We're to put on a number of things. Therefore, there's another therefore, Paul 
as God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved, and then he pictures it as putting on clothes. Clothe yourself. Here's, here's, the, thing, here's the garments to put on. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. Paul spends a number of times emphasizing gentleness, patience. Bear with each other, forgive one another. He talks about that a lot. So Jesus, if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on, again, the put on, love, which binds them together. So first, remember, the risen Christ is in you. You have the power to say no to sin. Secondly, remember what to put on. Put on the opposite of sinful behaviors. Put on compassion and put on kindness and put on humility and put on meekness. Thirdly, this one's powerful. Be thankful. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you are called to be called to peace and be thankful. Three times in three verses Paul mentions thanks or thanksgiving or being thankful. Meaning what? That somehow in some mysterious way there is something about saying thanks to God and expressing thanks to God that utterly neuters sin and sinful tendencies. Some of you know Becky and I like to walk. It's one of our activities and routines. And we have a route we walk that's four or five miles and we walk it regularly. And as we walk, part of our walking is at some point we always spend time praying out loud together for 10, 15 minutes on that walk. And one of the things that we always are doing in that is giving thanks. But once in a while, we did this last week, we'll say something like this. How about we spend the majority of our prayer time today just thanking God for everything that comes to mind. And so as we're walking along at Emerson Park there, we would just start thanking the Lord. Some of us for things we see, some of it for things we're experiencing, things we can smell, taste, touch, other for our kids, our grandkids, our church, things in our life, family, blessings. We just start going through a list and just think, thank you, Lord, for this. And thank you. Nothing is too small to not thank God for. And there's three times it's mentioned. That means it's a big deal. One of the things you look for in Bible study are repeated phrases and repeated words. There's something about being thankful and expressing it that utterly neuters sin. How thankful are you? It's not one of my strong suits, and so I need that reminder, and that's why when we do that prayer time outdoors, I need to do that sometimes and devote the whole time to that. The last, the, the last house, so remember the risen Christ is in you. Remember what to put on. Remember to be thankful three times in three verses. And lastly, let Christ dwell, his word dwell in you richly, verse 16. Some people miss the subject of verse 16. They get off on the hymns and the songs and the all kinds of, which are very good. That's not the subject of the verse. Let the message or the word, logos is the Greek word, of Christ so the Greek there is let the logos of Christ, the word of Christ, dwell in you richly. And then he goes on how that might look, teaching and admonishing and singing and all that. But the, the subject is the word. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. Meaning the key to killing sin is constant exposure to this. Reading it, memorizing it, meditating on it, and sitting under the regular preaching of it. 
If I start removing myself from the preaching of the word, if I start getting away from daily Bible reading and study, I'm going to drift places and they're all going to be bad. Now, lastly, I want to close with a true story that I came across this last week. Becky and I have read uh, at least one book by Rosaria Butterfield. And it was very impactful on hospitality. I read some more about her life this week and I came across her own description of how the word of God dwelling in her richly absolutely transformed her. And as I came across the story, I'm like, that's going in. That's, that's where we're landing the plane today. So, in case you're not familiar with Rosaria Butterfield, she is a converted lesbian. She, by her own definition, uh, she was a professor at uh, Syracuse University for a number of years in the English department and women's studies department. She was very active in the LGBT community. She was a lesbian activist. And her own academic interests, she tells us, were feminist theory, queer theory, and 19th century British literature. But, interestingly, she also needed to read the Bible as part of her research. So she started reading the Bible. And for a couple years, she said she was trying to both read the Bible regularly and be a practicing lesbian. And she said it really messed her up. And then something happened that utterly transformed her. I want to read her own words. They're powerful. This is on Legionnaire Ministries' website. After years and years of this, this being one foot in the Bible and one foot as a practicing homosexual, after years and years of trying to do these two things, the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. And then one Sunday morning, two years after I first met Ken, Pastor Ken and his wife, Loy, the same two years she was reading her Bible for her research, I got up and left the bed of, that I shared with my lesbian partner, and an hour later I showed up in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. And I kept going back to church to hear more and more sermons. I made friendships with people in the church by this time, and I really appreciated the way in which they talked about the sermon throughout the week, how the Word of God lived in them, and how they experienced it in the details of their days. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a wonderful, that's better than any description I could write of letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, and how that killed sin in her life. She couldn't do both anymore. That's, it, it shoves the one out. That is the power of the word of God to kill sin and lead us into joy and flourishing in the Christian life. And it simply comes down to, what do you want? Misery and unhappiness or joy and thriving? I said it last Sunday, I'll close with it. Holy people are happy people. And that's what Paul's arguing in Colossians. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray for three specific groups as I close the sermon before we sing. One, for those who are born-again Christians and know it and are walking in obedience to you. Father, this is ultimately a very encouraging sermon, a very encouraging passage because it reminds us we have the power of Christ alive in us and we have the power to live the Christian life and choose joy. 
And so for those here who are walking in obedience, Father, encourage them to just keep running faster and harder after Christ until the day they die. May they die well. I pray secondly, Father, for those who profess to be Christians and are living in some area of sin that they know of and have not repented. Maybe they're tangled up in pornography. Maybe they're caught in a web of lying and deception. Maybe they're cheating on their spouse. Maybe they've had a growing pool of angerness and bitterness towards somebody. Whatever it is, Father, I pray you would lead them to repentance if they're truly saved. And that today they would say, I'm done. I'm done with that sin. And I'm going to fight and kill sin and get back on track for holiness. And the third group, Father, I want to pray for are those here today who are not saved. They know they're not saved. They know they're not born again. That today might be the day they cross the line of saving faith or this week or this month soon that you would pull them in as one of yours give them your Holy Spirit and Father like Rosaria Butterfield may they be utterly transformed into new creations Father we pray for lots of those taking place we thank you for other gospel preaching churches in our area that are preaching the same life giving gospel that you would bless those churches and those pastors and their leaders and volunteers Father, thank you for the 130 years this church has stayed faithful to the gospel. Thank you for our elders and our staff and our leaders and lay leaders and volunteers on so many levels that are faithfully chasing Christ. We ask for your blessing on this church and churches in our area doing the same thing. In Christ's name, amen.